Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. Okay, hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, Chris Flaming, here as always. And today I have the distinct honor of welcoming Brett Nelson to the podcast. He works with a select group of clients on estate planning and family business matters. Brett helps to create family organizations and ensures multi-generational continuity. That was a big word. We'll talk about that. He also hosts a podcast and is a published author and speaker. Brett, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah. All right. Let's get jump in. So I'm sure you have a Christine history. I'm always interested when I talk to somebody that has in the legal field, how they came to find the focus of their practice or kind of what brought you to where you are today. Well, I grew up in a a farming family. And so on the border with Mexico, it's basically the, the, the corner between Arizona, California, and Mexico. It's the driest place and hottest and sunniest place in the country. And so I grew up working on the farm in the summers when not in school. And I decided there must be a better way to make a living than out here sweating to death in the dirt every single summer. So I didn't want to be in farming. And I had a a family friend who was a lawyer. I knew a few family friends who were lawyers. And I, I always enjoyed reading and writing and politics and history and those sorts of classes in school. So I thought, you know, I could probably, I could probably do that. And then when I got into law school, eventually, I, um, I was at a school that required you to take a, a basic federal income tax class. And I was dreading having to take it because it sounded horrible. So I decided I'm going to take it as soon as possible, just get it out of the way. And I tried to do that with all the classes that I didn't think were very interesting. So I the, the soonest I could take it was my second year, first semester. Okay, so fall of second year of law school, I took the class and I loved it. And it was the most interesting, the most practical class that I'd taken in law school to that point. And then I took as many tax classes as I could. I clerked while I was in law school and I did some estate planning and kind of family business type work. And I thought, all right, this is the thing I want to do. And if you want to do that and have any sort of tax element to your practice as a lawyer, you either need to already be a CPA, which I was not. I was a political science undergrad. Mm -hmm. You needed to get a job with the IRS, which I was not going to do. Or you need to get a master's in law in tax or (laughs) commonly called an LLM. So I did that. And then out of school, I got a job doing this kind of work. And that's all I know how to do. I have no other skills. There's nothing else anybody would pay me to do. So this you, is it. Wait, if you grew up on a farm, which I did too for a while, there's some skills that you have that would come back out if you needed to do them. True. I could I could drive a tractor. Right. I could drive very old vehicles with uh, shoddy clutches and things like that. That's the benefit yeah, of 
that's the benefit of growing up on a farm. You know, you learn to drive when you're like 10. So by the time that's you true. get your license, you're like, this is no big deal. Well, I learned to drive a standard or manual transmission yeah. on these old tractors and yeah. stuff. And then I, I remember I had a friend in college who had a, a little Chevy Cavalier that was manual and she let me drive her car. It was the first time I'd ever driven a car like a normal car right. that was manual. manual. And it, yeah. I was blown away how easy it was. It was like, is it supposed to be this way? What, what is right. this? Is this some sort of special machine? Yeah. Right. Cause the tractors is like moving stuff all over the place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that's um, leads me kind of into my next question. So if you could go back in time, not all the way when you were young, but if you go back in time and tell the younger you or give the younger you some advice on when they were starting out, something, you know, now that you wish you knew then. I think maybe just patience would have been the thing I would have taught the younger me because things just take time. Uh, it takes time to learn a craft. It takes time to build enough notoriety of, about you to to have a thriving practice. Okay. And I think that was more the, the, the thing that caused me the most distress early in my career was being impatient for things to really start happening. I, mm. I've never really lacked for confidence, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Good because it means that you're willing to try things and bad because it, it makes you a little bit impatient because you feel like, you know, maybe things aren't happening at the pace that you'd like, but mm-hmm. it's a long career and, and just being patient, I think is the key. Okay. I think patience is something a lot of people struggle with in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I have teenage boys, so I know all about that. Okay, so is there something that you're liking the best about your practice right now? It's a lot of putting puzzle pieces together. That's sort of the first thing, which is intellectually interesting and challenging for me. But then layered on top of that, because our clients are mostly individuals, So if you sort of think of like the family structure or the business structure, it's the owner at the top of the structure. It's not necessarily the business itself. Mm -hmm. It's varied. And so every puzzle is different and every family is different. Every business is different and the circumstances are different one day to the next. And so it's almost never the same thing. It's always something different. So probably how, I guess, the variety of the situations Mm -hmm. um, is so that keeps you challenged, I suppose. Oh yeah, definitely keeps okay. you on your toes because stuff comes up that you were never anticipating right. dealing with. And uh, it turns out that you're the person that gets paid to figure it out. <laughs> All right. So you touched on this a little bit. Do you have an ideal or a typical client that you usually work with? My typical clients are high net worth individuals and families. It's depending on the day, it's maybe 40, 60 or 50, 50 between those people and their families who are purely in the US and okay. then those people who are either foreigners with family or businesses in the US or they're Americans with family or business abroad abroad and okay so there's a big element of cross border work which is sort of its own yeah. world and its own weird set of tax rules and that collection of clients they tend to be a little bit more tax sensitive mm-hmm. and there tends to be just a lot more tax-driven decision-making and strategy that goes into their work, which is really why they call me rather than somebody else. Right. So I didn't really have this on my question list, but you just said something and I'm curious, is it harder 
to be a U.S. citizen and have a business in another country? Or do you find it more difficult to be from another country having a business in the States? I mean, I know that's kind of simplifying it, but Mm -hmm. just in general. It's probably harder to be foreign and come into the U.S. because there are extra rules that are penalizing. But it's really not easy either way you cut it. it. And it makes everything exponentially more difficult when you add in an international border. Okay. It is challenging enough to add in a state border. So if you have, you know, I think you're in Florida, yeah. I'm in Arizona. So I have some clients who they live here or they live there and then they have like houses and stuff in both mm-hmm. places. It's crazy and it's complicated and figuring out what to do for them. That's right. Is, is challenging. When you add in a completely new legal system to the mix and a completely new tax system to the mix, it's not twice as hard. It's like exponentially harder and so either direction is a big challenge. And it just means that people have to be willing to slow down just a little bit and really be deliberate about what they're going to do, because there's a lot of landmines you can accidentally yeah. step on. Oh, I can imagine. So that's where I suppose the patience comes in. Yeah. That, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then teaching other people that they need to be patient as well. Right. Yeah. Always that easy. always goes over well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I want to focus in, you mentioned like family business stuff. So I want to mm-hmm. spend some time on, on this. So just pretend I'm a lay person. They've heard of like family business, but what is a family business? How is it created? I mean, it's usually a business that one or a few family members are the principal owners of. They could have created it themselves, or it could be something that they kind of inherited mm. or purchased from another family. But the idea is that it's a business that's largely controlled by one group of related people. Okay. You know, brothers, cousins, just one, you know, mom or dad. And that business becomes for those individuals largely, I'm speaking in generalities, of course, but largely the substantial portion of their net worth. It's like Mm -hmm. their retirement. If you're working a job and you have a wage, you might be putting money in your 401k account. Like this is their 401k, right? This is how they're planning for retirement. This is how they live. And that business is usually fairly all encompassing to their life Mm -hmm. that drives everything. Mm -hmm. And just because it's owned by family members and it's very personal does not mean that the business is not subject to all the same corporate partnership, LLC, tax, et cetera, laws that exist for every other business on the planet. Yeah. So they have all the same legal issues as a business that's owned by strangers, but it's family. Yeah. And so there's a slightly different dynamic to it. I'm sure. Well, I I don't know if it would be slight or not. I guess it would depend on the personalities. So what, what do you usually find are the unique challenges that a family business would face as opposed to to people that, that were strangers or, or business partners or something that weren't related? I mean, it's pretty much the same for anybody else. But the big, the big challenge during lifetime is what happens if the principal people become incapacitated. Okay. At who's, you know, who's going to manage this business if they become incapacitated? Because again, the business itself, the legal structure is subject to all the same rules. So if you have an incapacitated person who doesn't have the legal capacity, for example, to sign documents, you have a problem. And so you have to solve for that right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And the typical way to solve for that, if you can, is you would either have a fairly robust 
set of employees who have the authority to run and sign documents on behalf of the business. That might not always be the case. And in addition to that, you almost always would have the ownership of actual business inside of a trust structure because those trust structures allow for the transfer of management of the business from one trustee to the next mm-hmm. without involving any courts and things like that, which you don't want to do. Right. So that's that's the biggest challenge. The second challenge is then how do we retire? Can we ever step out of this business? Right. And do we have the structure to do that? And then what happens when we die? Mm-hmm. And sometimes then we're also thinking about other catastrophic financial events, which one of the main ones is divorce. That can be a pretty catastrophic oh, yeah. event to a business. So we're trying to think through those issues sort of chronologically mm-hmm. and then coming up with a solution. And there's not one solution that works for everybody. It's very, very individual. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have to think about the what ifs, the good and the bad, because um, people always don't think that they're, they always think, oh, this will never happen. But as we know, in the type of work that we do, it certainly does happen more yeah, often it, than you would think. It does. It does. Ha- I mean, incapacity is an almost certainty. Mm-hmm. So that one right off the bat is like, yeah, we can plan for an incapacity and we're pretty much certain that that's going to happen and we're going to need a structure to deal with it. Obviously, something like disability or divorce is not a given, right? but it does happen and it happens mm-hmm. unexpectedly. I think most people have enough life experience once they get into you know their 40s, 50s, 60s to understand that those sorts of things, they do arise and they probably know somebody if they themselves haven't had it happen to them where it happened and it was kind of disastrous. And so this right. idea of planning around it is not overly foreign, um, yeah. Although it can be somewhat complicated because the laws are complicated, but mm-hmm. the, in the details, it's very complicated, but it, like the high level idea, people tend to understand it. How much they're willing to plan for it is a totally different thing, but they right. tend to understand the issue. Yeah. Cause then you're dealing with personalities and that won't be me and all that. And we'll get to that later. So uh, we always hear this thing about like multi-generational businesses failing, right? Mm-hmm. The business runs into the ground after the second generation or whatever that is. So can, can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Is that a myth or do you, do you find that to be true? And not maybe tactics, but what do you try to do with the clients that you work on to not, you can't completely prevent it, but what do you do to hopefully mitigate that, the risk of that occurring? Well, I think first you have to make sure you, you have the premise correct. Uh, I'm not saying that you stated it incorrectly, but yeah, for, for each client, you have to make sure you have the premise correct because the definition of failure depends on the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so if the goal is that we're going to sell the business and we're going to cash out and we're going to live the rest of our days happy with lots of liquidity, when the rest of our lives, we had no liquidity, Mm -hmm. then selling off the business and not having it anymore in the family is not a failure. Even though I think in those statistics, it would be included in the, the family business sort of broke up or it went away, right? Now it's owned by somebody else or oftentimes larger companies come in and gobble up smaller companies and family companies will get gobbled up in those events. It's not a failure necessarily, unless that's not what they wanted to happen. So first you have to sort of define the premise, but if the premise is we want this business to pass on to the next generation so that they, they own it and possibly operate it, although that's not a given, Mm -hmm. then the biggest Mm -hmm. impediment to that or impediments to that are number one, organizational is the business structured in a way that it's going to allow that to happen? And then number two, it tends to be 
goals driven, making sure that all the family members who are either going to own or, or manage the business going forward are on the same page. And much of that is an ever evolving and constant problem to try to solve. And it requires a lot of communication that almost always involves bringing in third party experts mm-hmm. who can advise not just the lawyers, but but experts who can really advise the family unless they're extremely organized already on their own. And it means that they are, they're going to be committing to a very long-term time horizon and discussing this time horizon or these goals over a long period of time. Usually mm. requires having frequent meetings, discussing the business, being very open with the about the business. I mean, there's a lot of effort that has to go into it because once you go from say one or two people and now you multiply it out to yeah. five to 10, the level of communication also has to grow at that rate. And so getting people organized and structured so they can do that is usually the key. You know, there's no, there's no panacea, but that's usually okay. the key. Okay. So are, is what you're describing, is that what family governance is? Because I was going to ask about, you know, what's entailed in family governance. It can be. Yeah, it can be. It depends on how you structure the business. But if you think about family governance as the the operation of the family business, then yeah, it's all built into the legal structure that's created and then the communication networks that are also formed. So for I'll give you an example. So I have a, mm-hmm. a client, they own a variety of real estate properties. They have some commercial real estate. They have just some vacant land and they have some land that's farm ground that they lease out. This is a, a third generation now that owns this collection of assets. I mean, this is the family business. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody is involved really in the day-to-day work other than managing the properties, you know, managing money mm-hmm. coming in and, and paying property taxes and expenses, et cetera. But nobody is in farming. Nobody is a developer. It's really, and there are about 20 people when you sort of sort out all the different ownership interests, about 20 people involved. Okay. In that instance, we wanted to make sure that we would be able to take those 20 people who are not as involved and at varying levels of sophistication and be able to sort of keep the whole structure together because it was going to benefit everybody significantly. And we created a, a structure of, a number of different entities that own these properties that are owned not by all the same people. And all of them are really under the control of a single consistent board that consists of a majority of representatives of the families. There were sort of three kids and there's like a Mm -hmm. representative of each of those family lines. And then a couple of advisors who are on that board. And then there are a handful of family members who are sort of tasked with doing the more mundane stuff on a more daily basis. So we have this structure in place and we meet uh, three or four times a year with different groups. Sometimes it's everybody. Sometimes it's just the smaller groups to discuss what's going on, opportunities that come up. And there's just constant, constant, constant communication. And we've been doing that for, I don't know, eight or nine years. And so far, so good. And people have died and things have changed over time, but the structure is in place to sort of make sure that, the actual operation and exploitation, if you think of it that way, of this business is consistent 
So you can take one person out of the picture and it doesn't just destroy the entire structure. Right. So that kind of, and that took a lot of thinking through. It took many years to think through the process of, I mean, it sounds easy enough to say it, but it took many years to think through the process of what is the right structure? Who are the right people? How should we do this? How do we explain this to people? How do we get everybody on the same page? And a lot of communication. Okay. So I was thinking about what you said there and, you know, the thought came into my mind, the best laid plans don't always pan out. Mm -hmm. So typically in those structures, I'm curious if someone needs to be bought out or canned or reprimanded or something like that. Does that somehow fit into those operating agreements or those family structures that you're creating? Because, you know, stuff happens, especially when you have that many people and you mentioned varying degrees of sophistication. So not how does it work, but is that part of that process when you're forming a business or when they're managing it? It can. It can come up that something happens and you need to either buy somebody out or somebody needs to get some extra cash. That's all stuff that has to be dealt with and decided in the moment. So there's okay. not a, you know, it's very difficult to know upfront exactly how to handle it. But we do almost always build into the legal structure some controls to deal with volatility. Okay. So one of the main controls, and this is not some wizardy thing that I came up with, this is fairly consistent in the industry, is that you would put controls on the transferability of everybody's ownership interest in the family business. So Mm -hmm. for example, they could not just take their interest and give it away to an ex-spouse or just give it away to a creditor or give it away to some third party so that there's almost always some controls to make sure that like, that's not going to happen. And that can't dilute the family. If Mm -hmm. so, if they wanted to, in essence, liquidate their interest in the family company, they would need to come to the family to get that done. They can't just Mm -hmm. go outside and sell it to some third party. And then there's almost always some provisions that would allow for the family business to be sold and allow for the the majority of the family or some percentage more than a majority of the family to force everybody else to go along with them to sell. It's called a tag-along or drag-along provision, depending on which way you're doing it. Okay, um, Those provisions are also quite common because you also wouldn't want, say, one bad actor in the family to veto a really mm-hmm. good deal. Mm-hmm. And so we're usually thinking about those sorts of transactions where there could be a liquidity event. One person doesn't want it, but we don't want them to just be able to veto just because they have a small percentage of of the family business. So there's a lot of those sorts of controls that are put in that have to do with the the ability of the family to take their interest in the company and turn it into cash. Cash. Sometimes we want it and sometimes we don't want it. And then we just have to control for what situations will we want to allow it and then what situations will we not want to allow it. Yeah. Yep. Again, talking about those what ifs and Mm -hmm. the stuff that you commonly see. So how does estate planning tie all of this together? You you touched on that earlier, but why is that so important? I mean, it's because you're dealing with humans. And so all of the humans have to have their own estate planning. Doesn't matter how much wealth they have, they still get sick and they still die. And so you have to control for that element. And then of course, at a certain level of wealth, there are tax considerations as well. And so you want to plan for those tax considerations, but all of that happens at the owner level, not not necessarily at the business level. There may be some structuring done at the business level to aid the estate planning, but really the estate planning is happening up at the very top of the structure at the human owner level. We almost always insist 
that every member of the family that owns an interest in the company do their own estate planning and have their own revocable trust that owns their interest in the business. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want the business in a court proceeding that we're not intentionally involved in. And that's essentially what would happen if you didn't yep. have the estate planning or could happen if you didn't have the estate planning and then they became incapacitated or they died. You could end up in a, a guardianship or conservatorship proceeding, or you could end up in a probate. And we don't want to be involved in those if we don't do it very intentionally. So we almost always insist, everybody, you got to do all your estate plan. doesn't mean that I'm yeah. going to do it, but it just means like everybody needs to get it done. Well, Lord knows you don't want to be in probate. That takes that took a long time before the pandemic. That's <laughs> even longer. It's not always easy, but no, you know, that's not necessarily the fault of of anybody other than courts or they're busy. They have busy dockets yeah. and and right. uh, you can't just get things done with the snap of a finger. We're we're dealing with something somewhat similar, uh, another sort of family uh business structure. We need to go into the probate court to to get something approved and they're available to, to help people get things approved where maybe the law is not as clear as you would wish mm-hmm. it to be. And that process, even once we're really ready to go, we're thinking maybe 30 days before we're going to get a hearing with the court. And that would be pretty quick. Yeah. You're just adding on layers of administration that yes, in the end it's going to get done, but it's, it's going to take time and you've got to involve the court and you've got to go down there and you've got to pay dumb people like me to show up and write documents for judges. So it's better just to avoid it. Other additional exercises in patience, right? right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious what you kind of view as your biggest opportunity for the future, like in your, in your practice, what you see on the horizon. I mean, the nice thing about my practice, if there is a nice thing is that Americans have not become less entrepreneurial Mm-hmm. So there's just going to continue to be family businesses, the the largest generation, or at least the wealthiest generation um, in the country is aging out. And the transition of their enterprises to the next generation is just going to continue and accelerate so that I, I don't see any uh, downtick in that. The other thing that's really been a boon to our practice uh, is just that people are quite mobile and they're, they tend to be very international. There, of course, there, there's a lot of people who are just siloed in the U.S., but there, mm-hmm. there are plenty of other people who are not, and there's plenty of money in the world that's trying to make its way into the U.S., and so that, that international side of our practice is, has always been pretty robust, and I, I don't see it changing in the future. Okay, and on the flip side of that, maybe share with us your biggest challenge or obstacle that is yet to be overcome or Mm. something you want to, you want to get past? Yeah. From a business perspective, it's almost always two things that are hard to control. So the first one is just that the laws change constantly Mm -hmm. and, or they're threatened to change Mm -hmm. constantly. And when they do it, particularly on a federal level, they do it in these massive, very complex uh, bills, you know, the, Mm -hmm. The uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2018 was a thousand pages almost. And so getting up to speed on laws that are very complicated and brand new and being able to then deploy them so that clients understand and can use it is a big challenge. And it takes a lot of time and effort. The other challenge is almost always staffing, Mm. having 
appropriate staff with appropriate levels of expertise to be able to do the work that we're doing because it is basically uh, micro niche type work. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be very, very technical and it's not something that you learn in law school necessarily. And it's not something you just learn everywhere in the world and in every legal employment situation. So you need somebody who has the aptitude to learn complicated things, to learn it fairly quickly, and then to be able to understand how the structures work. And it turns out, like almost every specialty in the world, the number of people who who can do that are not great. And so finding the right staffing is always a challenge. Yeah, that that isn't something where you can go online and watch a 10-minute YouTube video on on how it works or the creation of it or the administration. No, although people tell me that they do. Right. Clients yeah. will call me up and say, I've been doing a lot of research. I've been right. Googling this and I, I think this is the answer. It's well, that's 30% when they, of the answer. And when they say that, you know, they've either watched a YouTube video or got sucked down some sales funnel to buy a book. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, it's not bad. I'm not necessarily, right. I'm not necessarily against people self-educating, but it's sort of yeah. like self-educating yourself on surgeries and then yeah. coming in and trying to tell the doctor what tech, what surgical technique you think the doctor ought to use uh, right. in doing the surgery. Like nobody would even contemplate doing that. I don't think, but it does happen a lot in my uh, profession. Again, I think yeah. because it's, it's personal. People like to think that their personal things are not as complicated as they are. Yeah. And the legal framework for better or worse tends to be this sort of network of things that exist in the background. It's like unseen. You don't even know it's there. And so when you almost like flip the matrix and people can now all of a, all of a sudden see the complicated spider web mm-hmm. of legal networks behind them that's always existed there, they're sometimes a little bit shocked and in disbelief. So I, I have a lot of empathy for people trying to self-educate on some of these topics. Yeah. But you got to recognize when you need, need the specialist of the niche, you got to recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So Brett, if people want to learn more about you, get in touch, contact you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they could just Google me. I mean, quite frankly, the Google knows that I exist. So Brent Nelson Lawyer, you're, you're going to find me. But I'm, I'm at a firm called Ramon, R-I-M-O-N. So you can look up the firm. I have a, a landing page there. Okay. Um, I'm everywhere on social media. The handle is Wealth and Law, all spelt out. And that's the name of the podcast that's as well, the- Wealth and Law. So we, and we do the podcast once a week. So if somebody's a glutton for punishment and they want to hear me talk about these things once a week, you can look it up on all the normal podcasting aggregators, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, et cetera. So, okay. Fantastic. Brett, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. This has been a pleasure. I learned a lot. I know our listeners will too. And I want to thank everybody else for tuning in, watching, listening, the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors where we are raising the retirement confidence of everyday people and business owners to another level, one show at a time. Everybody take care and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Brett. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. 
If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.